0: Matthew 4, 12 through 17, where the word of the Lord reads as follows. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And after le- and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's our reading and text. Let's now respond to God's word by singing together Psalm 67, stanza 1. In response to the proclamation of the word of the Lord, and we'll sing this morning from hymn 19, stanza 1. And two. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't already noticed in our movement through these first chapters of Matthew, the Lord Jesus did his fair share of traveling. He goes from Bethlehem in Judea, his birthplace, down to Egypt, Chapter 2, verse 15. And then from there, he and his family went back to Israel, to the northern part of the nation, to Nazareth, In the end of chapter 2. And the next account has him traveling from Galilee southeast to the Jordan River for baptism. After that... The Spirit leads him out to the Jordan wilderness, the Judean wilderness, rather, to be tempted by the devil. And now in our text, when he is poised to begin his ministry, he heads back north to Galilee, goes to Nazareth, and then settles down in Capernaum. And of course, He's not traveling just for the sake of exercise or for seeing the sights. As we've also seen, pretty well every time he goes to a new location, Matthew says that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The picture that emerges before long is that Jesus is the chosen one by God to be the new Israel. He's going to these various places because he is the one who is appointed to reenact and refashion Israel's history. He needs to go to these places to fulfill God's word. All this is to say, brothers and sisters, that in addition to understanding the importance of biblical prophecy is the Importance of knowing biblical geography. Geography is important in the scriptures. It's important to the Lord Jesus. It's important to Matthew. It's something that needs to be important to us as well. And this morning we hope to see that. <clears throat> the riches of our text are located in its geography before anything else. And so we follow our Lord into Capernaum, the place that became the hub of his earthly ministry. This is where he would start his work of restoring the nation of Israel. We need to see why. We need to see why the light needed to start shining here in Galilee. Because it's going to help us appreciate better The very need for the light in the first place, also in our lives today. So I'm going to proclaim to you this word of the Lord Christ brings a great light into Israel, into Galilee. He brings a great light into Galilee. We'll see two things first, a people living in the darkness, secondly, a people lit up by the light. So with our text immediately following the temptations of the Lord Jesus, it appears as if the two events happened one right after the other. And in fact, there may have very well have been a distance of about a year between the two events. Well, that's suggested for us in the chronology that you find in the first several chapters of John's Gospel especially it's mention of multiple annual celebrations of the Passover. And what this means is that the Lord Jesus had been busy already preaching, teaching, doing miracles, establishing his core group of disciples. He's been getting around in Israel already, not staying in any one place for any lengthy period of time but that's all about to change. The Lord Jesus, our text says, gets to hear that John had been arrested. Matthew, at this point in the narrative, doesn't tell us why this happened. Later on in chapter 14, he mentions that it was because John had said to Herod that it was unlawful for Herod to take his brother's wife Herodias as his own wife. So, that was the moral matter behind John's arrest. Herod didn't really like what he was told. But there was also a political matter. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that John was imprisoned for political reasons. Herod feared that John's popularity with the people and his preaching and his baptism might lead the people to some form of rebellion. Mutiny, civil disorder. Because it's true, John was greatly loved. He was paving the way for the Lord. Who would want to turn him over to Herod, but Herod himself? Well, we also, brothers and sisters, need to see John's arrest as a sign of God's providence. God was leading things so that John would end up in Herod's prison. Why? This is a sign for Jesus to begin his ministry as the one who comes after John. But also, and even more important, Jesus gets to see That he comes after a prophet who has been handed over to the authorities by God. In John's arrest, we get to see a foreshadowing of the arrest of Jesus. And so John continues to pave the way for the Lord. He's already done that by his message to the people. And now with his imprisonment, soon after his death. Jesus will follow that prophet, first by teaching, and then by being arrested and executed himself. Well, that puts Jesus' entire ministry in a certain light. Actually, a certain shadow. The shadow of John's arrest and death. That falls on the ministry of the one mightier than John coming after John. Well, upon hearing that John was arrested, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. He's had the inauguration of his ministry in his baptism. He's proven himself worthy of his ministry in his triumph over the devil. So now, in Matthew's chronology, the next event is Jesus kicking his ministry into high gear. He goes to Galilee. Now it's tempting to say that the reason he went there upon hearing of John's arrest was that he wanted to keep out of the eye of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So he heads north. They had already been filled with such great jealousy over the popularity of John. So maybe Jesus didn't want to attract undue attention to himself and his growing group of disciples. Even before John went to prison, Jesus had been moving ahead of him in popular favor. John 3, 22 through 26. Now this may be part of the reason he withdraws to Galilee, but it is by no means the main reason Certainly not in Matthew's mind, anyway. When Jesus gets to Galilee, he goes to a hometown Nazareth first. But he doesn't stick around there. That's not going to be his headquarters. Prophets not well accepted in his hometown. That's no longer his place of residence. He leaves. And verse 13 says, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he does so, we're told, in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's the real reason he goes to Galilee in obedience to his father. What about Galilee? Galilee was far away from Jerusalem uh, physically. It was the most removed of the Jewish provinces at the northernmost tier of the land. Inhabitants of Jerusalem regarded Galilee as a backwards place, somewhat peculiar, and not in the least because of its dialect but it was considered far away from Jerusalem, also politically. It had a large population of its own, estimated at the time at between two and 300,000. Wealth, however, was very unevenly distributed. There were rich, but the majority of the population was lower class. There was a general rejection of the Roman ruling class, in fact, Galilee became notorious for revolutionary activity. They were inflexible and fearless. Well, for Jesus to withdraw his to Galilee for messianic ministry was not to be expected. He seemed to veer off, <clears throat> but it was necessary, and Jesus knew it. He settles in Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. That was the site of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those two tribes, along with the tribe of Asher, formed the New Testament, Galilee. If you picture in your mind for a moment the map of Israel with, according to your perspective, Sea of Galilee on the right Mediterranean Sea on the left, you have Naphtali here on this half between the two seas, and you have Zebulun here, so it's Naphtali, Zebulun, at the bottom in the middle of the two is Asher. Three tribes, most of which was in Galilee. So That was something that was already said in our text some 700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah in chapter nine, verse one, quoted in verse 15 of our text. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That last phrase. The main phrase, really, in the first part of the prophecy is that last phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the Nations. Why? Well, there's something very unique about this part of Israel. This territory was never completely Israelite. These tribes never went in faith to destroy the Canaanite in order to claim their inheritance even though the Lord had assured them that they would succeed, Joshua 23. Well, now it's true, brothers and sisters, that after Joshua's death, various parts of the whole of Israel were apparently lost again gain to the Canaanites. But with Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, there were serious long-term effects. That's why you read in Judges chapter 1 verse 31 through 33 about Asher and about Naphtali that they dwelt among the Canaanites rather than the Canaanites were still living among them. So the Canaanites were obviously very strong and could be expected to have influence on these tribes, for better or for worse. So it really wasn't good right from the get-go. And you get the impression that the Israelites living in these tribes somehow appear as second-class citizens. You see that, for example, in the time of King Solomon. After taking seven years to build a magnificent house of God, he finished the temple. Then he spent another 13 years on his own house. But by this time, he is so heavily in debt. To who? King Hiram of Tyre. Hiram had given him a lot of building materials, as well as gold, as much as he wanted. Well, what's Solomon's solution to get out of debt? 1 Kings 9 verse 11, He gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Galilee, you see, was unnecessary, disposable. Even though this was part of the promised land, Solomon pledges these cities to the heathen king Hiram at the drop of a hat. Galilee was a land apparently despised by the people of God, by and large. It was a land dwelling, you see, in darkness. These cities were apparently in poor condition, probably because of neglect, and so Hiram wasn't really all that impressed with this this payment. He says, what kind of cities are these that you've given me, my brother? We learn elsewhere that he refused these cities and returned them to Solomon. Galilee citizens were second-class citizens, living in Kabul, as those cities were called. And that was not a happy term. It was derogatory. It was clear. Something needed to be done. One greater than Solomon was needed to give hope to those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death one greater than Solomon was needed to remove the darkness. Well, it didn't really improve much at all after Solomon. The kingdom, you know, was split in two. And then before long, that northern kingdom plummeted into apostasy. The people of God dwelt in darkness, and that was especially true of Galilee. A large part of Galilee was conquered by Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. The net result is that for over a hundred years, much of Galilee remained in Syrian hands. <clears throat> and yet, God remembered his covenant, and he enabled Jeroboam II to make it Israelite territory again. 2 Kings fourteen twenty-five and following. But that didn't last long either. Israel failed on its part to remain faithful to God's covenant, to remember that covenant. So they were warned of the coming wrath of God. And that finally happened when the entire northern kingdom was taken into captivity. As it happened, the northernmost part of Galilee tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali was the first part of Israel taken into captivity by Assyria. That happened 10 years before the other tribes fell. 2 Kings 15 verse 29. During this time, Isaiah the prophet was ministering in Judah 700 years before Christ. And that's when he comes with his much-needed prophecy of hope. He says, this is not going to last. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah prophesies, That as Galilee of the Gentiles is the first to go into captivity, so this same region is going to be the first to experience release from captivity. We'll see more of that now in our second point where we see a people lit up by the light. The prophet Isaiah working in Judah at the lowest of the lows for God's covenant people, he gives hope. It's a prophecy that is so certain that it can be described as if it's already taken place. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's as if it's already happened. But when did this prophecy find its fulfillment? At least its first fulfillment. For of course, that's always what we need to ask when studying the Old Testament prophecies. Are there multiple fulfillments of a prophecy? Well, in this case, there are. As we said, after the northern kingdom was destroyed, the kingdom of Judah continued. Godly King Hezekiah, He rebuilds, he reopens the temple in Jerusalem, which had been closed down by its predecessor, his predecessor, King Ahaz. And he cleanses it and he restores temple worship to Chronicles 29. He also invites Judah and all those remaining in the northern kingdom, including Galilee, to celebrate the Passover feast. He sends couriers throughout the land and commands them to say, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. This was none other than gospel proclamation by a son of David. This was light for those living in darkness. And even though there were some who laughed these couriers to scorn and mock them. Some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 11. And so there was great joy again in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem the light begins to shine again. <clears throat> it shone again for those in Galilee in the days of Josiah. Josiah, we may know, is a, was a faithful king of Judah. He was able to exercise political control over the <clears throat> former northern kingdom, including Galilee. <clears throat> so along with the rest of that kingdom, Galilee, too, was purged of idol worship. Light shining to those in darkness. They were, a- <clears throat> they were able once again to celebrate a great Passover feast. 2 Chronicles 35, verse 18 says that no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. Judah and Israel rejoiced together in God and his mighty hand of salvation. These beams of light in the history of Galilee were mighty impressive and they were encouraging for the remnant of believers. But even so, brothers and sisters, more was needed. Those beams wouldn't, and they didn't last forever. They came and they went. So it became clear that the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of Galilee seeing great light would yet come. And it did come in the Messiah, That's when the light shone through the darkness of that part of the Promised Land that had been despised and had been rejected and also disobedient in the past. Beloved, how fascinating it is that the Lord God targeted Galilee in Christ's ministry right from the start. The very part of Israel first taken into captivity will be the very first part to experience release from captivity. God sends His Spirit-anointed Messiah to the place, you might say, where the nation intersects the nations. This is when the real light, permanent light, comes to live in Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah's prophecy of future blessing for backward Galilee pointed ahead to Jesus. That's how Matthew reads his Old Testament. In fact, he had only to look at Jesus' own life already before his ministry to alert him to the fact that Jesus would be there as a light for Galilee. When Jesus is presented in the temple, then Galilee is there in the person of Anna, the prophetess who was of the tribe of Asher. When she saw the infant Jesus, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke 2, 37 and 38. This is a representative of the remnant from Galilee. And she rejoices at the coming of the great Davidic king. What grace of God we see here. Christ was the savior of Galilee as well. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah from the very start of his life here on earth. Galilee was a land living in darkness, and so that's where the Lord begins his ministry and where he spends so much of his time. Here he calls his disciples. That's the next part of chapter four. Here he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana. Here he preached and healed here in Gal- <clears throat> Galilee was where the first resurrection from the dead took place, the widow's son at Nain. This is where he began gathering the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to light up these people with his presence. His presence became their privilege. He wasn't sent, you see. He wasn't sent to minister in the first place to the high and the mighty in Jerusalem who didn't think they needed Christ's salvation. He went to the most despised part of the country, Galilee. He went to the sorely afflicted, to the mixed Jewish and Gentile population. That's where the light of life is dawned for Israel. They would be the first to be restored from exile. And that happened through nothing else than the preaching. Before he gets to his Sermon on the Mount, Christ delivers the proclamation of verse 17. At the start of his ministry, Jesus preaches, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In essence, it's the same message as John the Baptist's. John, we said earlier, his task was to bear witness to the light so that all might believe in him. He taught the people to expect the kingdom of God in Christ. It's a kingdom not like the ones of the world, The kingdom of God has not come near in a physical or geographical sense. You can't see the kingdom like you could go and see the neighboring kingdoms of Egypt and Syria. The only way to see the kingdom is if you first repent and accept Jesus Christ as the king of that kingdom. This is what John the Baptist was teaching the people. He did it, however, in the desert, not Galilee, and so that's what Jesus Christ does. From the time John the Baptist is in prison, Jesus began to preach that message of repentance. Turn away from sin and turn to God in faith. Now. 2017, as you may know, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So we do well to pay attention to what Martin Luther wrote as the very first of his 95 theses. Thesis 1. What does he write? We know he did it, but we don't always know what exactly those theses looked like. Here's thesis 1. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent... He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther is thinking of Matthew 4, 17. Repentance is a lifelong project for the child of God. It has to be personal, sincere, and daily. If you repented yesterday, you must do so again today. If you repent today, you're going to do the same thing tomorrow. Repentance takes a couple of things at least. It takes humility to recognize through the mirror of God's word your sins and to grieve about them every day again. And repentance also calls for faith that you would constantly love and embrace Christ and his atoning work for you. Martin Luther lived and he wrote in an age of excessive ritualism and showy religion. Luther called the church to think about the basics, just like John and Jesus had done centuries before. And so we are called to do the same. The style, the character of God's kingdom is that he comes to us with his word in the preaching. And in that preaching, he calls for us to change, to be conformed to Christ, to seek God's forgiving grace in Christ, it's to seek the light of of Christ to enter into our lives and crowd out the darkness. Jesus said later on in his ministry, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's by faith that we may have Christ, be united to Christ, the light of the world. And that's great news, brothers and sisters. For Christ took upon himself our darkness and it happened throughout his whole ministry, his whole life especially at the cross. There is where the dark clouds of God's wrath fell upon Christ for our sins and the prince of darkness thought he had the last laugh over the church. For three Hellish hours on that Friday it seemed as if the darkness had won all of Galilee's darkness and all of your and my darkness was poured upon the light but no the darkness didn't defeat it the darkness didn't crush it Christ sustained God's eternal wrath an Easter morning, Sunday, Christ burst out of that tomb as the light of life. He punched through the darkness, and he won. And so there are consequences for you and me as those who believe in Christ. It's the light that you are called to worship. It's to that light that you are called to come in humility, running from the darkness, confessing the darkness that that light exposes in you and receiving life and salvation. And then also walk in that light. Come into the light. Let him illuminate your heart. To walk in the light, of course, doesn't mean that we are no longer vulnerable, susceptible to sin. But it means that we live in continuous communion with Jesus Christ, following his word, enjoying the power of salvation, for the light himself shines into our hearts. He reveals everything about those who come under him. He exposes where we fall short, and he urges us to live in such a way that he shine so brightly in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we get to hear in more detail this afternoon that the Son of God gathers His church until the, very, the full number is complete. He's been doing that since day one, from the beginning of the world to its end. And when He left this earth... He left his apostles, the men of Galilee, with the task to bring forth the gospel of the light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a glorious light by grace alone. This is how all God's children are gathered. And so what does the apostle John see on the island of Patmos, Revelation 7? He hears it, doesn't see it. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, and the list goes on through them all. Named, of course, then in that list are Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. What man may write off as worthless, God The faithful and the steadfast one calls these his very own. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Us. The Israel of God. He came to shine his light into our lives. And he has. Not one is going to be missing. All will be included in the heavenly Zion with its 12 gates on which are inscribed the names of all 12 of the sons of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun included. Do you look forward then to that day? Because that's the day where the glory of God will shine its light on the new city and the lamb serve as its lamp. The Lord God will give us light. Light is going to be everywhere. It will have conquered darkness forever. Live and celebrate and repent today. For the light of lights has come. And it will come again in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Amen.